Scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 36. Um, I'm thankful again that we have pew Bibles all around. I shouldn't call them pew Bibles. To my knowledge, we've never had pews in this building. So for like 40 years, this church has not had pews. Um, There are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. um, (laughs) And so if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, you can grab one. Uh, Find the book of Acts and turn to Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, The disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. I want to begin my message with a quote from Matt Smethurst's book on deacons, uh, which I had with me a while ago, and I put it down somewhere, and I don't know where it is. Uh, But I have three copies with me today, and I mentioned this two weeks ago. If you're curious and want more details about how I'm understanding the passage in 1 Timothy as it relates to deacons, uh, I would encourage you to read or listen to this book. There is an audio version available. It is very good. And the first sentence that Matt Smethers writes, and I'm just going to read it to you, says this. The Nazis, it turns out, did not like deacons. After the Netherlands fell to Germany in 1940, deacons in the Dutch Reformed Church rose up to care for the politically oppressed, supplying food and providing secret refuge. Realizing what was happening, the Germans decreed that the office of deacon should be eliminated. And responding in a general synod in July 17, 1941, the Dutch believers resolved, whoever touches the diaconate interferes with what Christ has ordained as the task of the church. Whoever lays hands on the diaconia lays hands on worship. And the Germans back down. Now, I want to talk about that for just a second. Because that assumes a level of church structure and organizations that we do not have, and it doesn't even make sense to us. But here's what happens. The Dutch Reformed Church had this more biblical model of elders and deacons, and they were united with other churches to such an extent that their deacons were giving shelter and providing food to people that the Nazis were politically oppressing. And they were so effective that the Nazis became aware that the deacons were undermining their efforts 
And so the Nazis had a problem with the church. And the Nazis tried to dissolve the office of deacons. And the churches gathered together. This isn't just one congregation, but the churches gathered together with the authority of united churches and issued an official statement that said, I'm sorry, a higher power created this office. You can do nothing to dissolve it. And they said, no. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine ministry so effective that it undermines the work of the devil in the surrounding community and in the world? Can you imagine ministry so efficient and so loving that people who hate the Lord Jesus would long to undermine and destroy our church? That's that's a bucket list goal right there. To be able to have the kind of legacy that says our love of Jesus was so visible in the community that people that hated the church tried to stop our ministries. This episode in the life of the Dutch Reformed Church clearly shows how essential deacons are, not just to the life of the church, but to meeting the needs of the community and to the ministries of compassion. But the question becomes, what are deacons? What are they? Because the episode that I've just described has very little to do with the way that I grew up understanding the office of deacons. And I think many of you have had similar experiences. Uh, The church where I grew up, there was a pastor, a youth pastor, a board of deacons, and a board of trustees. The trustees were tasked with managing the building and the church financial assets. The deacons were somewhat responsibility for the spiritual welfare of the congregation, but in many ways they functioned as a kind of advisory board, almost like a team of of, uh, secular managers that are trying to cast vision for the church. And in terms of boots on the ground, they did not lead different types of ministries. And you could really say that the old school deacons that I grew up with had a strange mixture of a sort of political power within the church with also some of the traditional responsibilities of pastor elders mixed in with the result that they did not do the kind of ministry that I've just described that the Dutch Reformed deacons did. They were not leading in feeding the poor or in the practical ministry of the church. They had delegated some of that to the board of trustees And other ministry teams led those things in an informal way, but they were not recognized officially by the church as having authority. So what the church had created, and this is very common throughout North America for the past hundred years, was a strange mixture where deacons are somewhat moved into the capacity of elders, and the work of the deacons is not really done in an official way by the church. The problem with that model is, and it has worked somewhat well in a few different places, but the problem with that model is that it is completely foreign to the New Testament. At its best, it allows the pastor to serve together with a team of godly men to meet the spiritual needs of the congregation. But the office of deacon, really, in the Bible, is not responsible for overseeing the church. In fact, unlike elders in the New Testament, 
We never see deacons meeting together to decide anything. You never see an assembly of deacons instructing the church. In fact, you see elders gathering to wrestle with the word and to issue clear instructions for the church. You see that happen in Acts 15. And you see it happen again when Paul calls the elders together at the church in Ephesus later in the book of Acts. You clearly see them functioning as a unit. They had regular meetings. They had authority over the church. But you never see deacons function in that way in the New Testament. In fact, you never see the church being instructed to submit to deacons, although you do see the church being instructed to submit to the leadership of their elders. And so it's through a strange bit of amnesia, and I would say biblical ignorance, that the church in modern America broadly seems to have forgotten what the office of deacon is really all about. And so there are two things that I believe that we as a church should do that would help us profoundly. First and foremost, we ought to examine the word of God like careful investigators, looking for instances where we can see this fleshed out. That's part of why I chose to read that passage that describes Dorcas, because I believe whether or not she officially had the office, her ministry demonstrates clearly what deacons are to do in meeting the practical needs of the church. So number one, let us look carefully at the word of God and try to understand what this office is. Number two, and I say this carefully because church history can be a help and sometimes a hindrance, so the word has to come first. But secondly, church history can be enormously helpful to us as we look at how deacons have served in the past. That's why I began with an anecdote coming from the Dutch Reformed Church in the 1940s. The history of how their deacons served their community should be instructive to us as we ask ourselves, what is a deacon and what does a deacon do at First Baptist Church of Holly? What we see in the New Testament is it is deacons who were responsible for feeding widows and orphans. That was the first ministry established that the apostles clearly indicate is essential for the church to take up, and yet it is vital that the apostles and later the elders must not lead in that capacity because their energy is to be directed towards the word and prayer. You can see that decision made in Acts chapter 6, and that type of division of responsibility is supported by a careful reading of 1 Timothy. So the church, rather than allowing the ministry of food to widows and orphans, rather than allowing that to be neglected, the church appoints deacons who organize and serve so that food is fairly distributed and the needs of the church are met. In the early church, it was deacons who walked the streets of ancient cities and rescued abandoned babies and raised them. Now think about the logistics of this for a moment. In the ancient world, abortion was not common or prevalent. And so if you were a young woman and you were unable to keep your baby, it was distressingly common for babies to simply be abandoned. Uh, And not only that, if you were a husband and you decided that you didn't want your child, you could tell your wife, we're not keeping this baby. And so babies were frequently abandoned. And the early church 
not only organized people to walk the streets to look for abandoned babies, they organized young mothers who would then accept that baby and nurse the baby because it was too young to eat solid food. That's logistical planning combined with compassion, combined with a recognition that the church has a responsibility to serve the world where it's most hurting. And so it was the deacons that organized those responsibilities. You can imagine they would have made schedules. They would have kept track of so-and-so is nursing two babies right now, probably can't take a third right now. They would have decided who would serve and where so that there wasn't a region of the city that was neglected. Deacons would have helped regular Christians make sure that the ministry was conducted well. Not only did they seek to feed the poor, to rescue abandoned babies during plagues several times throughout history, deacons would fearlessly meet the needs of the sick and bury the dead. And for centuries, deacons have relieved the practical needs of the poor. And in churches all around the world, deacons serve Jesus by meeting the practical needs of the church so that the entire church can be strengthened by the ministry of the word and prayer, which is led by the elders. So I want to give you a clear definition, and I hope that this is helpful. I believe that the office of deacon is one that is formally recognized by the church and vested with authority to lead in a particular area so that those entrusted with the ministry of the word and prayer are not required to devote too much time elsewhere. You can see this worked out in Acts chapter 6. So not only do the apostles say it would be wrong for us to neglect the ministry of the word of prayer to wait on tables, they add that it's the responsibility of the church to recognize qualified and godly people and that the church then prays for them and commissions them. So the entire church is aware of who is leading in these capacities and the church has officially given them authority to lead within the area of food distribution in Acts chapter 6. But that's not the only area that deacons serve. It's one of many. John Stott is a pastor and the book by Matt Smethers references his work in particular as he goes through the book of Acts, and he says he believes that Satan attempted to destroy the early church in three ways. First, he attempted to persecute Christians who love Jesus so that they would stop preaching the gospel. And instead, the apostles said, you must decide whether it's right for us to listen to God or men. We cannot help but preach the good news of Jesus. And they continued to proclaim. So the attempt to stop the church through persecution utterly failed because they continued to preach the word. Next, Satan attempts to destroy the church from corruption within. Some of you will remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So as the church is growing, many people are selling their property and donating their money to provide for the needs of the congregation so that people are fed and have their basic needs met. And Ananias and Sapphira decide that they will look as if they are that generous, but secretly keep some of the money for themselves. And so they have an issue of integrity. They lie to the entire church, and they seek to have public recognition. And Peter publicly condemns them, and the Lord puts them to death for their sin. And the, the scripture says the whole church was in fear 
and continued to be devoted to the word, and the church grew. So Satan's second attempt at destroying the church through sin from within failed because they dealt with their sin, and the church was not tempted to continue in it. They forsook it, and the church continues to grow. But the third way Satan attempts to distract the church is through diversion. In fact, he gives them a good ministry that Jesus commanded them to continue in, but attempts to divert the apostles from preaching, not through a strict command, don't do it, not through moral failure that would disqualify them, but instead through a ministry that would suck up their time so that they could not faithfully pray and they could not faithfully study and they could not faithfully preach. He tempts them away from their primary calling with something that is partially their responsibility, but ultimately should be done by the entire church. And friends, I believe that is where many churches are. And in fact, I would say many of my weeks have been distracted by good things that are necessary, but should probably be done by someone else. And so the division of labor, so that we can be a church devoted to the ministry of the word and prayer, is utterly necessary. And the official recognition of those who are qualified and capable to serve is essential so that if you don't like a decision so-and-so deacon made, you don't show up at my office and say, Pastor, you got to deal with this. Because if you do that, I will say, oh, well, the whole church recognized so-and-so as the deacon in charge of that ministry. You need to go talk to them. This is how the Bible demonstrates the church functioning. And if this is fuzzy and unclear right now, hopefully in a few more minutes it will not be. What I would like to do in the next few moments as I preach, is I want to do three things. Before I go any further, I want to demonstrate that I believe women are called along with men to serve as this office officially in the church. Number two, I want to define what that noble calling is, and I want to give you two words. I believe they are lead servants. They are lead servants. You could say that elders are the other way around. You could say that elders are servant leaders, and I believe that deacons are lead servants. Number three, in closing, I want to describe the rich reward that comes from serving in this capacity. And I'll be honest, that three-part structure might seem a little bit odd, because it probably would make more sense to talk in more detail about what a deacon is and what it means to serve as one. But I want to answer the question of whether or not women can serve in this capacity first, because I don't want anyone here wondering, how do I fit in with this kind of structure? How do I serve the Lord with my gifts and abilities? I want to make certain that we settle this question now so that no one feels excluded as we move forward. So if you haven't already, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. I want to read through this passage carefully and talk about something that is not clear from many of our English Bibles. So 1 Timothy, we are in chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 8 through 13. Paul continues and says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
And let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise, and I would pause right there. I believe that would be better translated. Women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Number one, I believe that God calls women to serve in this capacity. You might say, Pastor, how on earth do you see that in this text? And I want to begin with the Greek word that in many of our Bibles is translated as wives, but in reality is simply the word women. You maybe have heard, if you've heard a pastor preach and reference Greek, how Greek is this fantastic language that's enormously clear and how they have five words for love and how you can be so specific. And here is one clear instance where English is actually more specific than Greek is. Greek does not have a separate word for wife or woman. They have one word. It's gune. We get our English word gynecologist from that word. In a specific context, such as Ephesians 5, it is evident that there are times where it clearly does mean wife. However, in this context, it almost certainly means women, generically, who serve as the office of deacon. And I want to argue this on the basis of three particular things. Uh, One of those is the reality of something that you can't look at when you're looking at an English Bible. If you have the most recent edition of the NIV, it will translate it as the women. If you have a New American Standard Bible, uh, which is an older translation, but one of the only ones that faithfully renders this, it simply says, verse 11, women likewise must be dignified, and goes on and lists the qualifications for women who serve in this office. The reason is, there is no word for their or the in Greek. It simply says, women likewise. In other words, the same way deacons likewise must be dignified, women likewise are called to have the same qualifications. There is no indication in verse 11 that these women are married at all or that they are the, the wives of those who serve as deacons. The structure of the passage, particularly the Greek word that's translated likewise, is giving you a straight order starting at the beginning of the chapter with elders Continuing in verse 8 with deacons generally, and then I believe verse 11, specifically to be clear that women are included in this, Paul makes a reference to women who serve as deacons so that there's no doubt that they are to be recognized with this office officially. So number one, the word is woman, not wife. Number two, There's no pronoun that says these women are related to anyone else. It simply says women in the Greek text. Number three, the structure of the passage shows that Paul is continuing to talk about those who are serving in an official office, and these are simply the next people who are included in that list. 
Number four, there is at least one clear example of a woman who is given the title of deacon in the New Testament. So Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Reads, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant or who is a deacon in the church in Crenshaw. Now, I want to pause again. Uh, The NLT, I think, rightly translates the word as deacon. Here's part of why. Now, I'm sorry if, if I'm being a little bit technical in how I talk about language this morning. Sometimes this is necessary. In Greek, just like in German or in Spanish, many words, in fact, all words are assigned a particular gender. So if you have an adjective or a noun that's referring to a person, it will typically match that person's gender. Now, Phoebe is very clearly a woman, and the word for deacon is actually masculine. And you might say, well, that's strange. Why is that? Here's why I believe that is. Paul is saying that she has the official title of deacon, and he's using the title that will be obviously recognized by all of his first century readers. So the fact that the title is masculine is actually indicating that this is an official office held by Phoebe. So the New Testament gives at least one clear example of a woman serving in this office, and I believe there are other clear examples, one of them being Dorcas, who serves in this type of ministry that the New Testament praises and holds up as an example of how Christians are to serve. Now, I've spent a couple of minutes talking about what the text says and why I believe the text demonstrates this. This is my scriptural argument. One of the reasons I feel very confident about this is because people in the ancient church believed the same thing. Now, my native language is English. I know some Greek. I know enough to know that I need to know a lot more. I can't speak it natively. I can quote passages. I can read a little, but it would be foolish of me to be overly confident in my abilities to work in a language that I am at best somewhat familiar with. However, those who lived in ancient times spoke it as native people, and their interpretations are very helpful. And many people within the ancient world clearly reference women serving in the official office as deacon, And I want to give you a few different quotes, particularly because many of these same people would have said that the office of elder is reserved for men based on the end of chapter 2, which I agree with. And church history is continuing to be consistent and helpful as we interpret this book. So to begin with, uh, Pliny the Younger is a historian, and he quotes the governor of Bithynia, who wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan between A.D. 111 and 113. Now, I'm giving you the date because I want you to know this is a very early practice within the church. So Jesus ascends to heaven about the year 33 A.D. 1 Timothy is written probably in the 60s. And just 50 years later, as people wrestle with Paul's instructions and put it in practice all over the church, 
this governor writes to the emperor about some young ladies in the early church. And he says, accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. Now, he's writing as an unbeliever. This is helpful because it shows that non-Christians from outside the church at least understood how the church was structured and organized, and he uses their official title. It's also helpful to know you didn't have to be a rich person to serve in an official capacity in the church. The church did not look at worldly status and success. The church looked at the qualities that Paul lists here. And they called people to serve based on their biblical qualities. And it didn't matter if you were free according to the people or not. It mattered if you were qualified. Number two, Clement of Alexandria is a pastor. And Clement of Alexandria writes in A.D. 150 to 215 at the latest. Clement says, We are also aware of all the things that the noble Paul prescribed on the subject of female deacons in one of the two epistles to Timothy. Now that's huge. That means a pastor in the second century understood this letter as prescribing things for female deacons. He speaks the language far better than I do. And the office clearly existed And he is standing on 1 Timothy to say that it is a biblical office. Origin of Alexandria writes between the 2nd and 3rd centuries. And he says that Romans 16.1, that I clearly referenced a moment ago as it concerns Phoebe, Romans 16.1 teaches two things, that there are women deacons in the church and that women who have given assistance to so many people and who by their good works deserve to be praised by the apostle ought to be accepted into the diaconate. Now, in the little book, uh, there are other quotes, and many of these can be found in different commentaries. I'm going to skip some. I have more, but I I don't want to take too much of our time looking at church history. I do, however, want to highlight a few more. Uh, John of Chrysostom. John of Chrysostom is kind of like an ancient Billy Graham. He's famous because people loved to hear him preach. He is very gifted as a preacher of the word of God. And centuries later, guys like John Calvin look back at John of Chrysostom's sermons and love how clearly he preached the gospel in the 5th century. John of Chrysostom says, Some have thought that 1 Timothy 3.11 is said of women generally, Interestingly, he doesn't even consider the possibility that it's talking about wives of deacons. He says, some have thought that 1 Timothy 3.11 is said of women generally, but it is not so. For why should Paul introduce anything about women to interfere with his subject, specifically the subject of deacons? He is speaking of those who hold the rank of deaconess. So John of Chrysostom, writing in late 4th, early 5th century. Uh, Jerome, it's one one of the pastors that translated the Bible into Latin describes a woman named Salvina. She consecrated her life to the deeds of piety and became one of Chrysostom's deaconesses. Later, one of the the reformers, John Calvin, says deaconesses were appointed not to soothe God by chantings or unintelligible murmurs and to spend the rest of their time in idleness, but to perform a public ministry of the church toward the poor and to labor with all zeal, assiduity, and diligence in the offices of charity. 
And then I'll give you one Baptist guy, uh, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon says, Deaconesses, an office that most certainly was recognized in the apostolic churches. It would be a great mercy if God gave us the privilege of having many sons who all preached the gospel and many daughters who were all eminent in the church as teachers, deaconesses, missionaries, and the like. Now, I know that's a ton of quotes from church history. Here's part of why I'm doing that. I want you to know that I'm not by myself in my study trying to figure out what this means and giving you my private opinion. I care deeply about how the church has understood the scriptures in ages past. Yes, sometimes they get it wrong. And if I believe that someone in church history got something wrong, I will try to dig deeply in the scriptures to understand them accurately. But when the understanding of scriptures converges with what the church has believed for over 2,000 years, we would be foolish to just disregard the clear teaching of our elders and sometimes betters and to forge a different way that has nothing to do with the Bible. I believe that the testimony of church history and the clear testimony of the scripture not only says that women can and must serve in this capacity, but we need to better understand the nature of the office for the sake of the unity of the church, for the sake of the ministries of our church. We need to wrestle is what is a deacon? Because so many of us have grown up in churches either that don't have them at all or that have confused their role with that of a pastor or of a board of directors when the scriptures do not show anything of the kind. So what is it that a deacon does? Well, To be honest, I believe it depends a lot on what ministries are essential for your church. I think one of the most beautiful examples of deacons in ancient times is completely unnecessary today. Namely, people, by the grace of God, do not abandon babies anymore. Not in North America, not here. And we have a different tragedy through abortion, and and, and we pray to end that. And one of the reasons that we support Answer Center in Flint is we want to support young moms so they don't choose to end the lives of their babies. We do a similar type of ministry in trying to strengthen and support young moms. But we no longer need to organize women to walk the streets to rescue babies anymore. So the cultural needs of our day dictate that that particular ministry is not necessary. So we don't have a deacon of rescuing abandoned babies. However, there are clear areas of service that we do need men and women both to serve in. Some of these, I believe, you could just pull our church constitution out and look at the different offices and say, okay, these are the things that must be done in ministry that the pastor should not do. And so these things that we currently have different designations for really are ministries of deacons. You could have a deacon of the treasury, a deacon of the financial secretary. Some of those are very clearly defined. Others are less so. And unfortunately, a lot of it falls on Debbie to try to organize different ministries. Uh, So we have people that 
kindly and graciously donate their time to mow our lawn and plow our parking lot. And the administration of that, at least initially for right now, a lot of times does fall on Debbie, trying to organize who's mowing when, who's plowing when. And many of you have faithfully stepped up, and that's fine if Debbie wanted to serve in that capacity. We could ask her and maybe vote and elect her in that capacity. But the problem is she didn't ask. She kind of just got stuck holding the bag. And that happens far too often when it would be better to say, church, we have need of an administrator to organize this particular ministry. Let's recognize someone who's already serving, who's biblically qualified, and next week I'll preach more on the biblical qualifications, and let's vest them with authority so that they can make decisions and it doesn't all come back to the office or it doesn't come back to the pastor's office, but instead someone with authority can say, hey, I think this is the best way to manage it. You know what, I'm gonna be gracious and and try to make wise decisions and get good feedback, but at the end of the day, here's the decision for the blessings of the church. And that person can make a decision that the church needs to rally around and support. I'll mention one area in particular that we currently don't have an official deacon that I think we need one, uh, and that would be an audiovisual ministry. Uh, when we decided that we wanted to try to do live streaming last year, uh, I said to Chris, okay, Chris, I'm going to investigate the video component of it. I'd appreciate it if you would co- investigate the lighting component of it and, and try to figure out what we need. And Chris and I, the, the two pastors in the church, devoted our time and energy to doing hours of research and proposing a plan to the church so that we could stream our services online. Now, I think that probably was the right choice at the time. Uh, We didn't have somebody who was serving in an official capacity there. We have many volunteers. I'm looking at Dave right now, who who volunteers a ton of his time. Um, But at the end of the day, Chris and I should not have anything to do with that if we're to devote our time in, in the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. Not that we never have anything to do with it, but it would be far better to appoint someone that the church could officially recognize to manage a budget and to take care of those needs. And there are many other areas. In fact, one of these, I, uh, a couple of years ago, we had a sweet older lady come to the council meeting and say, hey, pastor, I think it would be so great if we could organize kind of like a local Christian Angie's List. You guys know what Angie's List is? Uh, so it, it, you look up this list of sort of like the white pages, but they're vetted local contractors. So you're not just hiring some yahoo that you've never heard of, but you have a sense that I can trust this guy as a plumber or a roofer or, or, or whatever. And she said, hey, it, wouldn't it be great if we knew that they were Christians and, and that maybe they would have compassion on people on a fixed income and, and just meet some of their practical needs? And for a lot of different reasons, we felt like, man, this is way too much. Like, we can't possibly take this on. Uh, So we did not publish, like, a First Baptist Church of Holly Angie's list. We didn't even attempt it. You know what I think would actually be far better? Is a deacon of elder care. And when I say that, I mean a deacon of care of the elderly, so that the elderly folks in our congregations are regularly visited. And maybe you go into someone's home and you see, oh, man, they, they need a painter to help fix up their home. And that person not only prays with the senior they're visiting, but then comes back to the church and says, hey, can we help them out in some capacity? You know, I don't know that we'd recommend a painter, but we could organize a workday 
And so the relational spiritual side of being a deacon is meeting a practical need. Now, should the pastors become painters? Maybe a couple of days a year, but probably not on a weekly basis. So the practical side of it is we're looking to meet those material needs, but not by giving you a phone book, but by instead coming and visiting you and loving on you and taking care of you in prayer and making you part of a fellowship. So the church is not just a club. We're not just trying to help you connect with different resources. We're a family and we're trying to love each other. And so I would say one of the areas that's needed is many of our seniors have come to me with different needs and different practical things. I have a lady call me and says, Pastor, you know, my, my neighbor needs a toilet. Like, I, I just installed my first toilet ever this past year. I am the wrong guy. <laughs> but yet it's an opportunity to love on someone that lacked the financial means to replace her toilet. And so we were able to kind of step in and say, okay, we'll kind of do this. But I'll be honest, I spend a couple hours going, ah, I don't know who to call. Oh, man, I don't know who's going to pay for this. I, it, like, and it distracts from what should be my central focus. And if we had a deacon of elder care focused more on practical ministries, I could say, perfect. I'm going to pick up the phone. It takes me five minutes. I put somebody else on this job. And our church meets the need. And people hear about the love of First Baptist Church of Holly that we've received from Jesus, and it flows through us, and it changes toilets and paints walls and does all kinds of practical things. Now, I'll be honest. I have not been remarkably clear about every type of deacon that we need, and here's why. I am not remarkably clear on every type of ministry that we need in the church. Part of the reason I believe we need to have some church meetings is I want to look at, okay, currently we have nine positions on our council. Some of those positions clearly correspond with ministries of deacons, like benevolence. Benevolence is a traditional deacon-type ministry. So that's easy. We're going to have a deacon of benevolence who has authority and leads in those different areas of benevolence. But on the other hand, what about celebrations? Do we have a deacon of celebrations? Maybe. Should that be divided into some different responsibilities so maybe we'd have a deacon of the kitchen? I don't know. Maybe. So what I'm asking you to do is I want you to come to the meeting on this coming Sunday at 3 p.m. with good ideas. Let's figure this out together. Probably initially, it will be a small list. And I want to say something really clear. I I believe that we could have a number of different types of ministries, and many of them do not have anything to do with others. So let me be clear about this. Okay, hypothetically, if we establish a deacon of audiovisual ministry, the deacon of audiovisual ministry does not need to have a meeting with the deacon of benevolence because they have Nothing, there's no overlap between their types of ministry whatsoever. So why would you waste their time meeting together? Both of them would work closely with the team of elders that provides leadership and unity and guidance for the church, but they don't need to waste their time in meetings. And so deacons are best served by serving, by allowing them to meet the needs of the church and not tying up their times in meetings where very little can be done. I believe that if we establish this type of office, we will do more ministry. The needs of the congregation will be better met. And I believe that we will be blessed as we pursue this. Now, that gets into my final point this morning. The rich reward of serving. 
and Paul mentions this specifically at the end, I want to say clearly, I'm not done with the, the topic of deacons because you do not just look for someone who is competent in a particular area and say, this person should be an authority because they're good at painting or whatever. This is a spiritual office. This is an office instituted by Christ. And so there are qualifications. You, you may have someone who is very gifted in a particular area, but utterly unqualified to serve in leadership at the church, and we must not compromise on that. So next week, I will talk more about the spiritual qualifications, just like I did with elders. I wanted to talk about the noble task and then the high qualifications. This week, I'm talking about the noble task of deacons, and next week, I want to talk about the high qualifications. But before I do that, why would anyone in their right mind volunteer at a church? Why? You invite conflict. You invite criticism. It, it, it's kind of a pain in the neck sometimes. Many of you have seen these things up close and personal. And yet here I want to show you very clearly why someone should consider serving in the office of deacon. Verse 13 there is a high reward. Paul says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I was talking with, with Paul Dix this morning and we were talking about times when you get a glimpse of the church in its beauty. And I mentioned one of the responsibilities that I had as a deacon when I served at Moody Church, I had two. I was the deacon of front desk ministry. Um, so <laughs> it was kind of a large church. They had tourists coming in all the time. So their front desk was kind of like the first point of contact. So you would come in and they would be like, hi, welcome to Moody Church. And these are the bathrooms and that's where you take your kids. And, you know, you can sit here, you can sit here and, and please, you know, whatever. That was kind of the job, but it was oddly enough, like it, it was a large enough church that you had several volunteers that volunteered to serve under the deacon of front desk ministry. And so my job was to be kind of a liaison between the front desk and the elders. So at one point they said, hey, we need a new laptop. So my job was to go to the elders and say, hey, front desk needs a new laptop. They said, okay, we'll, we'll take care of it. And then they took care of it. And I was kind of an administrator that was bouncing back and forth between the people who were serving and the elders who were leading. Now that's one example, but my secondary responsibility was to be part of the leadership and to pray for the church and to be aware it was happening and to serve the church, not just materially, but also spiritually. And so they asked us to go through these qualifications. They asked me to be interviewed and for Lauren to be honest about her husband, whether or not he actually fit the bill for these qualifications. And then I was nominated and the church voted and officially called me. I believe that kind of vetting process is essential. And those who serve well gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the spiritual part of my job there, I also serve communion. Um, I, I, not by myself, it was a large church. Um, you also, they had a choir loft with these crazy steep stairs and no railings at all. So you were tasked with holding lots of grape juice at the top of very steep stairs with nothing to hang on to. Uh, it, it was like you never wanted to serve the choir communion. 
really you wanted to be somewhere else. They felt like having deacons serve communion was a good way for them to connect broadly outside the front desk ministry or outside one of the other committees that they would be on. I kind of disagree with that. I, I think that it's okay, it's, there's nothing wrong with it, but I believe serving communion, if we go back to, to passing trays, is a beautiful opportunity to see your brothers and sisters in Christ remembering the body and blood of the Lord. The reason I'm mentioning this is one of the first times I had a clear glimpse of the church in its beauty and loved the people that I was serving was I walked down these steep steps with my tray thinking I'm going to trip and be like the first deacon in the history of Moody Church to spill grape juice all over everyone. But thankfully I didn't. And I got down to the bottom of the stairs in the balcony and I turned around and there were many people that I did not know, but there were a lot of people I did. And having just been elected to the office of deacon, I was really humbled by the fact that together we were united by the body and blood of Jesus. And I felt like I was part of the church in a way that I had never felt like that before. And there was an immediate rich reward because I was serving as a deacon in my church. I had a spiritual benefit of looking at the faces of people. I had never looked around the church before when I took communion. I'd always just been very focused, like, Lord, you know, examining my heart, thinking of my sins, and thanking the Lord for his mercy and, and the blood that covers my sins. And, and I'd always been focused on myself. I had never turned around and looked at the whole congregation. And because of the service that I was called to, I had the blessing of seeing the whole church Remember the body and blood of Jesus. Remembering that he didn't just die for me, he died for everybody. And I didn't just get to go to heaven by myself, but I get to go with all you people. And the humbling thing of being united in service was a rich reward in that instance because I was serving in the office of deacon. Now that not only happens immediately, he says you gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And I think that happens again and again. Some of this is kind of pastoral ministry. So as you visit someone who's sick and you sing with them, my faith has been so strengthened and blessed as I've been with people sometimes in their dying hours. And my faith is strengthened because I see them hanging on to Jesus. And I believe that our church would be blessed if more of you saw those moments if you see how the Lord carries someone through some of their darkest hours, your faith will be strengthened that he will carry you in your darkest hours. And so, saints, the reward is not just something that Jesus gives you when you go to heaven. The reward is a combination of confidence and good standing because you're serving presently. And I believe that if the Lord calls you to serve, you will be blessed in this capacity. Now, the last thing I want to say is, hey, maybe you're not called to serve in leadership. Maybe for different reasons, you really are disqualified and you cannot serve. So what does these passages mean for you? Well, a couple of things. The church needs to vet those who are called to service. We have been very, I don't want to say lax, but we have not been as intentional as we should in how we nominate people for leadership in the past few years. Uh, we've been blessed with some very good leaders, and we've been blessed with some challenges. And so I want to say we need, as an entire congregation, to pay attention to the biblical qualifications for those who serve in leadership. This book is given to us so that every October, when we vote on who serves, 
we must be carefully looking at this passage and say, should I vote for that person? I want to add, I also think we should probably stop voting for people as a unit. We are a small enough church, we can vote for people individually, and that gives the congregation more freedom to say, I believe so-and-so is definitely called, and I question whether such-and-such is. Your freedom as a congregation to vote no is critical in making sure that unqualified people are not put in positions of leadership. I don't want to have to throw out the whole group if you think one person is unqualified. So, saints, whether or not you serve in this capacity, be aware of the high calling and be ready to vote accordingly. Not only that, I want to end with this. When we took communion a couple of weeks ago, we read our church covenant. And I'd like to do that regularly because what that covenant says is that we as individual church members pledge to support the work of the ministry, not just financially, but by serving in our ministries so that they are successful. That's a pledge that every member takes. And I believe it's a pledge that we must take seriously. It means not only attendance and participation, but also service in volunteering. Scripture says that the purpose of elders and deacons is not to do 100% of the work, but to equip the entire church for the work of the ministry so that we all grow up to maturity. And friends, it's my prayer that every person who is here today and part of our fellowship would be involved serving in ministry and enjoying the rich reward and blessing of letting the Lord work in and through us. Would you pray with me? Father, I praise you and thank you for your clear instructions in your word. I ask that you would help us as we go to your word again and again to put it in practice faithfully here in our church. I pray that you would bless us. I ask that you would give us real unity. Bless us as we meet together next week. Bless us as we have our business meeting in October. I pray that you would establish leaders that would bless this church and this community for the purpose of winning the lost to Jesus and strengthening those who are already saved. Lord, I ask this in the name of Jesus who gave his blood for the church. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.